Welcome to episode 27 of the Known Pleasures podcast. In this podcast, Mark Patrick and I discuss the music of the post-punk slash new wave movement of the late 70s and early 80s. You can listen to the songs featured in this podcast by clicking on the link that will take you to a Spotify playlist created just for this episode. We have recorded this episode via Zoom, so the audio quality may vary from time to time. You can now access our podcast on Spotify, and you can also find us on Twitter at Pleasures Known. Norman, play that bass. I'm Patrick. How you doing? Are you? My name is Mark. And I'm Graham. And guess what? Here's Patrick to introduce today's band. When the BBC website ran a poll on great disabled Britons, it came second only to Stephen Hawking. That's how loved and admired was the geezer from Upminster. A late comer to fame, Ian Jury's unique presence at the mic, the cross between Charles Dickens, Fagan, Spike Milligan and Johnny Rotten, ensured that he was once seen, never forgotten. In tandem with the blockheads, Ian conjured a string of hilarious, poignant ribald hits in the late 70s and early 80s. His brilliantly wild imagination took us from Fulham Broadway Station to Yucatan and back, encountering characters as diverse as Superman's big sister, Billa Ricky Dicky, and a tailor called Simon. So, how does his music stack up after all these years? Has our trawl through the Ian Jury back catalogue left us thinking, what a waste? Or was it as good as cheddar cheese and pickle, a Vincent motorcycle, or slap and pickle? Let us discuss. Touch it! I think the most striking thing about Ian Jury's birth is how long ago it was. He was born a few weeks before Paul McCartney in 1942. So for someone who became you know, a success in the 70s, so yeah, just to kind of place him in that context of being the same age as the Beatles kind of shows what a long journey he had. Yeah, well, when I first saw him, he seemed a lot older than a lot of his contemporaries. Hmm. And then um, on his first album, and we'll get to this later, the fact that he wrote a song called Sweet Jean Vincent, mm. that was kind of a testament to how old he was. Yeah, yeah. The fact that his heroes were from that era. And he liked to tell people he was born in Upminster, but in fact he was born in a place called Harrow Weald in North London, uh, which is a couple of miles away from where I was born, actually, in Southgate, as you can probably tell by the uncanny similarity <laughs> of um, <laughs> accent. Yeah, yeah, Patty, you're going to have to speak a bit slower because that Cockney accent is impossible <laughs> to make out for me. Imp- impenetrable. Yeah, I think Ian's background is really interesting and I'm sure we'll keep coming back to this. His dad was a very much a working class guy, a bus driver. His mum was middle class and educated, but Ian obviously was drawn more towards his dad's side of things. Mm. As Ian says, my mum spoke beautifully and my dad didn't. (laughs) And, yeah, his parents separated during the war and never got back together. And he moved in with his mum in Upminster, which is a town east of London, when he was about five years old. So when did the accident happen? It wasn't an accident, was it? What should I refer to it as? (laughs) When did the incident happen? (laughs) The incident, yeah, yeah. It happened when he was seven years old on a trip to the beach. He swallowed a mouthful of water when he was in a swimming pool. He went swimming with a friend, and the friend didn't contract polio, and Ian did. Right. Uh, and I think Ian swallowed a mouthful of water, and, and his friend didn't. So, yeah, this is 1949, and I think a vaccine was discovered for polio in 1954, so five years later. So these kids weren't social distancing at all? They weren't wearing masks? No, no. <laughs> no, no, that's right. I mean, you can social distance all you like if you're swallowing water, which is polio riddled. <laughs> yes, I suppose so. Yeah, he was just really unlucky. It was a particular summer, or that particular year had been a really bad one for, for polio. Yeah. I think his mum thought he was probably going to die, but, but he survived, and... I think we've all seen the film, the Ian Jury film, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, mm. and just the kind of terrible conditions he had to deal with at the Chaley Heritage Craft School for disabled kids. It was a pretty tough school. Yeah. Was this before he went to the Royal Grammar School in High Wycombe? Yes, it was, yeah. yeah. So when he was 12, he went to boarding school Oh, okay. at Royal Grammar School. But, yeah, the disabled kids' school, you know, there was a lot of physical abuse, hints of sexual abuse as well, and... Yeah, it was just a really, really tough environment. Mm. You know, Ian developed a really thick skin and, you know, it was very Darwinian, you know, survival of the fittest, and he just made sure that he was one of the tough kids. So that kind of instructed his character later on, I imagine. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, yeah, he went to the Royal Grammar School in High Wycombe, which is in the vicinity of uh, Oxford or thereabouts, and no one liked him. He had no friends. Yeah, one former student said, my perception of Ian Jury 
was that he was a thoroughly nasty piece of work, <laughs> which is a pretty decisive description of someone. Absolutely. Yeah, he apparently formed a little gang at school harassing other kids, one of whom was crippled with rheumatoid arthritis. So he was a really <laughs> lovely, he was a lovely young lad. <laughs> you don't think of Ian as having gone to uh, an institution called Royal Grammar School. But in terms of famous old boys, the main ones who kind of stood out for me on the list were uh, Howard Jones went to the same school. Uh, as did the comedian Jimmy Carr. <laughs> so they were old Wicombienzians. <laughs> he became a bit of a teddy boy and, you know, he was into proper rock and roll. You're uh, Gene Vincent's Bebopalulas and, and so on. And, uh, yeah, then it was off to art school. And this was the one in Walthamstow, wasn't it? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. He was pretty uh, talented at painting and illustrating and he gave himself the nickname Toulouse, <laughs> as in Toulouse-Lautrec. <laughs> it was kind of getting in early. It was a preemptive nickname strike. <laughs> <laughs> that's good. I've been to Walthamstow, actually. It's quite nice. Uh, yeah, yeah. There's a very famous, or there was a very famous racetrack there. Yeah, the uh, dogs, the dog track. And I actually placed yeah. a bet there. Oh, okay. I just wanted to say that, just so yeah. I've got inside knowledge on Walthamstow. <laughs> yeah. I did place a bet suggesting that, uh, oh, actually, I think the bet was that I was going to lose all my money by the end of the day. <laughs> and I did. <laughs> yeah. It was a lovely racetrack. I recommend it highly. Uh, and then he got into uh, the Royal College of Art. Part of his final assessment at the Royal College was a life-size illustration of uh, Gene Vincent. So he was, he was wow, getting he, in that Wow, he early. really liked Gene Vincent, didn't he? He really liked Gene Vincent. But, uh, yeah, it was, it was about 1970 before he really got into music. Who, who, who slapped John? Speaking of Gene Vincent, it was the death of Gene Vincent in 71 that inspired him to form a band. And um, that was Kilburn and the High Roads? Mm. Yeah. And one of the interesting things about Gene Vincent was that he walked with a limp. Oh, really? Courtesy of, he was in the car crash that killed Eddie Cochran, and he walked with a limp courtesy of an accident. But they were actually two separate accidents. <laughs> so he was really accident prone, Gene Vincent. <laughs> so the accident that left him with a limp was separate to the one that he was in that killed Eddie Cochran, which is a lightning striking twice. <laughs> but uh, Ian was quite well connected. And when he decided that he wanted to form a band, the first thing he did was he went to France to visit Charlie Watts from the Rolling Stones. Oh, really? Which for someone as unknown as Ian was, you know, it was, a, it was a pretty good source to have. And Charlie Watts said, you're a pretty good painter. What do you want to play music for? It's all been done. Oh, dear. <laughs> <laughs> Which probably says more about Charlie Watts than it does about music. That's right, yes. Have you fellas had a bit of a listen to the Kilburn and the High Roads back catalogue? I know they had an album out called Handsome, didn't they? Yep, yeah, that's right. Yeah, I thought it was pretty indicative of uh, London's pub rock music at the time. Yeah, yeah. Did you hear much of it, uh, Mark? Um, just those couple of uh, tracks that are kicking around, yeah. Nothing sort of remarkable, it was okay. The band had many incarnations and lots of members. You know, Ian was a bit of a tough taskmaster. Uh, in one incarnation of the band, they had a drummer who needed crutches to walk. They had a guitarist who was about four feet nine, you know, like he was almost like a dwarf. And then there was Ian as well. So they were a really peculiar, yeah, interesting looking bunch of guys. They never really made it, to say the least, but Nick Kent, the famous music journalist, mm. said in 1973, Ian was simply the most charismatic figure I've ever seen on a small British stage. So he was already, you know, making inroads, high roads, you know, <laughs> as early as 1973. Yeah, they supported The Who on the Quadrophenia tour in 1973. Yeah, that must have been a big opportunity for them. Yeah, so there were little kind of little hints of what was going to happen with Ian and the Blockheads. But yeah, I like the description of uh, Reckless Eric. He said of the Kilburns, he said, they were like a badly constructed shed that's falling to pieces after 25 years of misuse. <laughs> <laughs> Which, um, they were so crummy, but they were so good. And that's one of the best descriptions I've ever heard of a band. I think that's really pretty amazing. So the Kilburns never really rose above cult status. Yeah, yeah. Ain't the love affair with Nina in the back of my 
Well, after the Kilburns disbanded in 75, there was this chance meeting between Ian and a young musician that went by the name of Chaz Jankel. Mm. And um, this was a real turning point for Ian Drury, I think, because I think while we all agree that Ian was like a talented lyricist and quite a charismatic frontman, I think Chaz was able to filter his ideas through some great melodic arrangements and some pretty sophisticated chord progressions. And I don't know what drew Chaz to Ian because he's kind of an odd figure. Yeah, yeah. Like you wouldn't think that, uh, you know, people would be drawn towards this rather difficult, <laughs> disabled character uh, and, and thinking to yourself, this guy is the future sort of thing. Yeah. But Chaz obviously thought that. I saw a description of Chaz at the time as being a nice middle-class Jewish suburban boy. And certainly, you know, interviews you see with him and so on, he just seems you know, like a very nice, polite person. But also the stories about Ian are about how difficult he was to deal with. Yeah. And for someone who was a nice middle-class suburban boy, you wonder how Chaz Jankel, you know, survived mm. in that kind of really tough environment. You know, there was a lot of psychological warfare mm. in how Ian dealt with people. You know, he would deliberately at times mess with people's minds. Mm. He liked to keep his fellow band members on their toes. He made sure that he got 50% of the earnings for every song, courtesy of having written the lyrics, you know, which, which was fair enough for, from a legal point of view, but not necessarily from a band morale point of view. Mm. So they, they started writing songs together. The interesting thing is that um, Chaz was a fan of Sly and the Family Stone, which is really at odds with the musical revolution that you know, they were about to become a part of. But you can hear it in Ian Drury's music, especially the, the funkier songs that they wrote together. Well, Kilburn and the High Roads were relatively standard pub rock, uh, a bit Chaz and Dave, mm. if I can mention that kind of music hall. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like raucous yeah. music hall. But, uh, yeah, as soon as Chaz got involved and they met up with Norman Watt Roy mm. and the drummer Charlie Charles. I'm Charlie. Suddenly, you know, they're a really formidable and pretty funky band. Mm, it was a great rhythm section. And I think uh, the saxophonist, Davey Payne, was with them at this point too when they went in to record the first album. So the first album. Mark, tell us about it. Well, I was going to talk about the, the difference between the demos for the first album that Ian and Chaz played and then the demos that the former members of the Loving Awareness uh, who were the band, which was uh, the guys you just mentioned, came and played on. If you ever get a chance to hear the, the difference between the demos. If I was with a woman, she wonder what was happening. Little things would slowly go askew. It's really a really noticeable difference in quality. If I was with a woman, she wonder what was happening. Little things would slowly go askew. Ian played drums on those, Chaz played everything else, and then you've got probably a handful of tracks that the other guys play on who will become the blockheads, and you can really hear where they're going to go. But the interesting part is that those guys were full-on session musicians and very accomplished, and what they heard in this that attracted them to being involved in it was what I found interesting, because as Patrick said, Ian was a very difficult character, and it wasn't a natural marriage that I could see. Mm. They were very proficient musicians and, you know, it was a bit rough and ready what Ian was doing. The sound of that album is, is those guys. I mean, Ian's basically reciting poetry. He's not really singing. Mm. But what Norman, what Roy said was that he picked up a sheet of lyrics that Ian had lying around the house, of which there seemed to be dozens everywhere. And he read these lyrics and was just blown away by them, said, you know, no one's doing this sort of stuff. No one has ever done this sort of stuff before. You know, this guy's got something. And Ian Mm. would throw another piece of paper at him, say, no, this one's better than that. You know, don't don't worry about that. There's another one. (laughs) And that's, that's what got him involved in wanting to work with this guy, which I thought was a really interesting turning point from the Kilburn and the High Roads pub rock thing into this other thing which at the height of punk was an odd turn to take but it was kind of a marriage of punk and brit funk if you like which is a very sort of jazz funk sort of vibe mm. um that we hear on the first album they'd all been around for a while you know apart from chaz so the idea of them kind of landing in the middle of punk you know kind of using punk to their own ends was pretty interesting they were way too good musicians <laughs> they mm. were way too proficient at their instruments a bit like the stranglers they were proper musicians Mm. Well, that's what I'm saying. There's a world apart, a world of difference between the two types, the, the two ways the songs are done and how they end up sounding on the album. I mean, even a song like the first single, I think, was Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Yes. Yep. Uh, which was released in 77, which wasn't on the album. Mm. 
the, the riff is ripped off an Ornette Coleman track. Um, the usual ground for the English punk bands no, <laughs> no. turned up a song. Uh, and it's a great little riff and it's a very funky track, a real indicator of where they were going to go with the rest of the album. Very good indeed. Keep your silly ways or throw them out the window. The wisdom of your ways. I've been there and I know. More so than probably Sweet Jean Vincent, which I think was the, the next single. Mm. Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll was released on the 26th of August 1977. And then the album yep. came out in September. And then the second single, Sweet Jean Vincent, was November. But none of, neither of those two singles did anything, did they? No, not really. Well, I think Sex and Drugs and Rock and Rolls, I think, sold out maybe 19,000 copies, as in one, nine. Um, but I think, well, the album was rejected by pretty much every label uh, and Ian was friends with a couple of guys who had just started a record company called Stiff Records and he thought, well, I, you know, I might as well go with them. And Stiff's policy was to delete singles pretty rapidly, I think, to kind of keep things moving. Right. And I think they stopped making Sex, Drugs and Rock and Roll, the single, available pretty quickly. So it never had a chance to get into the charts. It was slightly self-defeating. <laughs> not, not a good business model at all. <laughs> so that's my understanding of what happened. So well, it's one of those songs that's synonymous with Ian Jury but didn't chart or didn't do anything for some strange reason. It's a really well-known song. But I think it was part of when he was on the Stiff Tour with Dave Edmonds and Elvis Costello and a bunch of other people who toured around England all of the bands would get on at the end of the show and do Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll together. All of them would play that song as the, as the closing song. Yeah, it had got a lot of traction and it was obviously just one of those anomalies that it didn't get in the charts. Ian Jury maintained that the song was not a punk anthem and he was trying to suggest that there was more to life than the nine-to-five existence, which is all well and good, but the song still contains the line, Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll is all my brain and body need. <laughs> <laughs> it does contain the kind of classic Ian Jury thing where he kind of skews things in a really weird and interesting way. So mm. mentioning the Taylor call Simon, he knows, you know, I know it's going to fit. Yeah. You know, that is just like, where did that come from? <laughs> Stuff like that I think is fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Did you want to go on to talk about New Boots and Panties? Because... Um Whilst there is elements of, of funk, and you can obviously see how, hear how good the uh, musicians were, I actually think it's quite an unusual album. Um, while I was researching this podcast, I thought that the two things we would say over and over again would be the words music hall mm. and kitchen sink drama. And this first album features a lot of this. He painted these very vivid pictures, like that song, My Old Man. Um, it's very English, but you can almost picture, you know, the front room of the house and yeah, his, yeah. His, his old man and uh, the relationship he had with his dad. A lot of these songs were like these little mini operettas, these mini plays. And yeah, I really like that about him. Bill Ricky Dicky as well, which is a story about a, a guy from Essex and his sexual conquests. Most importantly, he's not a flaming thicky. <laughs> That's right, he's not a flaming thicky. He's a very intelligent chap. <laughs> My old man has some great lines in there. Like it's basically talking about Ian's dad, who was initially a bus driver and then a chauffeur. Mm. And just little things like, his dad obviously had to go to the airport from time to time mm. and was waiting for people. And yeah, there's a line in there about his dad doing the crossword while he's at the airport waiting in the rain. And just mm. those those kinds of little details just really kind of are so vivid. Did the crossword in the standard at the airport in the rain at the airport yeah, that's what I was saying. It's, it's uh, like the music's a real treat to listen to, but to follow the lyrics is, is just uh, another thing altogether. Blackmail Man with, has all these rhyming slang examples in it, and um, he was a big fan of rhyming slang. Blackmail Man, if you unravel the slang terms, it's absolutely <laughs> managed to be offensive to just about every <laughs> racial group on the planet. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I didn't take such a deep dive into that. <laughs> I'm going to have to go back and have a look now. Well, yeah, and it's funny. Ian says he wasn't really influenced by punk, mm. but Black Male Man is is pretty is a pretty punk song. And that 
juxtaposed with the funk of Wake Up, Make Love With Me is, um, is really unusual. And then there's these other things like Billa Ricky Dicky and uh, My Old Man, which, uh, yeah, as you say, kind of music hallish. Um, so, yeah. so, so it is quite diverse, I guess. Quite a few of the songs were co-written, obviously, with Chaz Jankel, but a few were co-written with a bloke called Steve Nugent as well. And I haven't been able to find out really who Steve Nugent is. I did see one description of him as an American anthropologist and writer. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know why Ian was writing songs with an American anthropologist, but funnily enough, the funkier songs are the Chaz Janko ones, mm, yeah. and the more new music hall ones are the ones he wrote with the American anthropologist. And of course, there are punkier songs, and of course, Plastow Patricia, not since Iggy and the Stooges has there been a more obscene count into a song. Yeah, so from funk to 50s rock, a little bit of reggae, a music hall, and some punk at the end. It, um, it really is a kaleidoscope of different styles and uh, certainly not indicative of what you would expect from a new wave album at the time. It's kind of of its time and, and not of its time, if that makes sense as well. When I hear it, I'm sort of transported back to 77, 78, but it doesn't sound like a punk album and I don't really know how it got sort of lumped in with all of that sort of stuff apart from the way he looked and his attitude, more really. But I think Stiff Records had a lot to do with that as well, like mm. his success in the movement at the time, because that Stiff Records was like a, a home for these rejects, I guess. And mm. uh, there was no way that Ian Drury was going to be a part of the prog rock movement. Uh, you know, he wasn't going to be like David Essex on the top 40. He just um, <laughs> he had his own thing. And so it was perfect for Stiff Records. And I think mm. people who are into punk, you know, as you know, a lot of them kind of looked elsewhere to see what else was kind of interesting at that time and and uh, it's, it's like Elvis Costello wasn't really punk but he seemed to ride that wave. There was certainly a roughness and a rawness to the lyrics in particular which were really punk mm. and there was a ton of swearing. It had a really strong kind of working class feel to it so it kind of ticked quite a few punk boxes. When they went to the meetings <laughs> the, head of, the head of punk rock said so what can you bring to the movement? It was very spreadsheet-oriented, the punk movement. <laughs> it was. <laughs> yeah, the punks were very brand-aware. <laughs> so uh, is, that a, is that a thumbs up for the first album from everyone? Yeah. Yeah, it's a pretty likeable album. I don't think it's an amazing album. It's not an album that I'd listen to a lot probably, but with Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll, which is only on some of the, the later pressings, mm. um, of the album, but, you know, that's a, an absolute classic, obviously. And uh, we spoke of Sweet Gene Vincent, which was the next single, but after that, uh, apparently Stiff Records launched a concerted Ian Jury marketing campaign, and in the spring of 78, they had this enormous push behind his next single, which was What a Waste. I could be the driver in articulated lorry. I could be a poet, I wouldn't need to worry. I could be a teacher in a classroom full of scholars. I could be the sergeant in a squadron full of wireless. What a waste. Uh, it reached number nine in the UK. It was Stiff's biggest selling single to date. I love this song. It's got a fantastic lyric, hilarious, just a really cool song. Just the music itself is funky enough and catchy enough to be a hit and when you add that vocal over the top it's pretty uh, unique I think. Yeah I think it was a great song, really funky, great lyric and uh, actually that intro music was later sampled by A Tribe Called Quest. As the tribe flies high like a dove. I don't know whether you've seen um, his appearance on Top of the Pops performing that song, but the most striking thing about it is for someone to appear on Top of the Pops for the first time around about the time you're turning 36 is, <laughs> is astounding. And in terms of the kind of music, I mean, we think of that era as you know a post-punk era or, you know, like this kind of music was really starting to happen. But the song that was played just before What a Waste was Too Much Too Little Too Late by Johnny Mathis and Denise Williams. And so in terms of creating that kind of contrast, it's like, okay, well, this is a little bit different. It really did stand out at the time as being something quite unique. I think around about this time, the new Boots and Panties album reached the top 10. So going on that tour, the stiff tour with Elvis Costello and so on, had created a groundswell of support for him and he was really off and running. Mm. with What a Waste and it was all really starting to happen for him. Yes, well, it wasn't long after. Was it November 78 when the next single came out? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. And, of course, this was probably the most well-known song, you reckon? I think it was his most successful single. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 
This yeah. was, of course, Hit Me With Your Rhythm Stick, which, uh, yeah, it went to number one in Australia, number one in the UK, and uh, he was now a, a bona fide pop star. Hit me with your rhythm stick. Hit me, hit me. Ich liebe dich. Hit me, hit me, hit me. Hit me with your rhythm stick. From the point of view of seeing it on Countdown, the Australian music show for the first time, I mean, I'd heard Sex and Drugs and Rock and Roll. Uh, I don't know if I'd heard New Boots and Panties, but... That film clip, it's like, this is one extremely menacing, sinister-looking <laughs> guy. Yeah. The It's such a weird song because the lyrics are quite kind of jaunty. It's kind of like the Cockney knees up, um, mm. the sing-along kind of travelogue kind of thing. And then it kind of goes into this, like the chorus is the unspoken violence associated <laughs> <laughs> with being hit by a rhythm stick is, uh, you know, that could obviously get pretty ugly. <laughs> I still, to, to this day, don't know what a rhythm stick is. No, no. I'm, I'm assuming there's a, a sexual element there. Yeah, although Ian did walk with a walking stick. Oh, okay. Maybe maybe that was it. Maybe maybe that was maybe that was connected to it. So, Mark, what did you think of the rhythm stick? Uh, yeah, yeah, no, I remember it being a big hit, uh, number one in Australia, and I think it propelled his album um, into the top 20 as well. I was always always amazed by the 16th note bass line. Mm. I don't think there's ever been a number one hit single with the 16th note bass line. It's quite amazing to listen to even now that somebody can play that fast. In the deserts of Sudan and the gardens of Japan from Milan. Someone told me that uh, you know, when a guitarist goes into a music store and they pick up a guitar and they start playing Stairway to Heaven, apparently bass players play the bass line to um, hit me with the rhythm stick. It's, it's uh, something that a lot of bass players learn how to play. Mm. The uh, bass player, Norman Watt Roy, that's hyphenated, he used to joke that he was paid by the note. <laughs> <laughs> apparently they recorded 11 takes um, and then they kind of chose one of, one of the early mixes. But that, the bass is quite low in the mix. Mm. So I don't know that the band was entirely happy with the mix that was chosen and given what an amazing bass line it is, mm. you could imagine it being higher in the mix to kind of make it more prominent. There were also some really good, like these singles weren't on albums, which as, as no, we know no, no, that's right. was the style at the time. There were also some really good B-sides and uh, on the B-side of Rhythm Stick was a song called There Ain't Half Been Some Clever Bastards which I yeah. remember at the time because I, I bought the single. And once again, his lyrics are just amazing. There's this verse where he says, Einstein can't be classed as witless. He claimed atoms were the littlest. Um, when he did a bit of splitterness, it frightened everybody shitless. <laughs> I mean, that deserves some kind of award, I think. Yeah, yeah. Especially making up his own word there. There's a line there about some painter and he says he didn't paint the Mona Lisa that was done by some Italian some geezer. Italian geezer. <laughs> <laughs> this was his genius I think but yeah I would like to uh, put forward a, uh, um, a hypothesis that maybe had he got all of these hit singles and there was a few of them around the time and the really good b-sides together he probably would have had a really good album in between the first and second album that probably would have done better than any of his albums. Yeah. But, yeah, as we know, they like to keep the singles separately at the time. And it's weird listening to the albums because you could just listen to his singles, mm. uh, almost all of which didn't feature on the albums, and you would think, okay, that's a great little back catalogue, and you haven't listened to any of his albums. <laughs> yes. like, the Do It Yourself album was next. Yes. That was actually my favourite album. I don't know what you guys thought of it. I thought that, you know, it was a lot funkier than the debut one. It didn't sell as well, didn't have any real hit singles on it. But I thought it really showcased the Blockheads as being the great musicians that they are. That was May 1979? Yeah, May 1979. Uh, I, I think it got to number two in the UK charts. Uh, I don't know how many copies it sold, but it was kept off number one by Voulez Vous. Um, the, the ABBA album. God damn those Swedes. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's probably my favourite of their albums and even as an instrumental album. Yeah, Chaz Jankel is, is all over it. Uh, In Betweenies was my favourite Blockhead song. I, as soon as I heard that, I had to <laughs> learn how to play it on bass. It was, it was really good. Shake your booty. Uh, Sink My Boats was good. Waiting for Your Taxi. Taxi, which taxi never come. 
Oh, I just wanted to say also that uh, when you listen to This Is What We Find with a lot of his songs, I really love the Blockheads backing singers. They kind of sound like a bunch of guys at a pub singing along to a jukebox. <laughs> and Dance of the Screamers. It could have been on Boz Gag's Silk Degrees album if it was slowed down a bit. I preferred the first album, to be honest, but um, yeah, look, it's got some nice moments, but I think the musicianship kind of starts to overshadow what I liked about Ian Jury, which was kind of him, I suppose. I don't, maybe I'm not hearing it right, but yeah, it's, it's okay. I don't love it, to be honest. I, I, I did prefer the first one. Maybe the novelty was wearing off a little bit, like uh, by mm. then, maybe for me anyway. I really liked the last song, uh, Lullaby for Francis, mm. which is a very, very chilled out groove and a really lovely song and uh, one of the lyrics is tumble down tired and true spirit to restore a balance is due go to sleep now francis close your eyes i'm feeling drowsy already when i listen to those lyrics <laughs> go to sleep now francis close your eyes it's a genuinely kind of beautiful song and kind of a, like a reggae vibe and as a way of concluding the album it could hardly be more of a contrast to Blackmail Man <laughs> from the previous album. I defy anyone to come up with more contrasting final songs on consecutive albums than those two. <laughs> I really loved it, but um, really should have had reasons to be cheerful on it. I mean, you said it went to number two, which is pretty good. But I think the yeah. album, maybe worldwide, would have done better had, had uh, reasons to be cheerful being the first single of the album. And speaking of which... It was odd enough that Reasons to be Cheerful was released two months after the album, which is a really, release an album and then two months later release a single that isn't on the album. <laughs> and it's probably the first British rap single ever. Mm, yeah, that's absolutely. right. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, well, it was released two months before Rapper's Delight, for what that's worth, the Sugar Hill Gang song, so I'm not sure how much rap they'd been, other than Gil Scott Heron. And it's also, it's a laundry list song, and I love a laundry list song. Kind of where the songwriter goes, you know, to hell with poetry. I just want to write a list of things, and I'll make every second line rhyme. And, um, yeah, yeah. of course, our friend Billy Joel did it with We Did Start the Fire. But, um, <laughs> but there's been a few songs like this. Short Memory by Midnight All was a laundry list song. Um, yep. Yeah, the Marx Brothers get a mention buddy holly gets a mention but not yep. but not the big bopper um, <laughs> shame <laughs> and woody allen and Smokey robinson are also reasons to be cheerful too which is yeah. pretty cool my favorite lines are probably um i'm gonna do the accent guys <laughs> okay hang on i'll count you in one two three uh, in wheel of scammers dominate the camels all other mammals plus equal votes <laughs> now to get to the bottom of that 18-wheeler Scammels, so Scammel was a brand of truck, you know, like Mack trucks. Right. Uh, D Dominica Camels was a breed of camels, I think. Um, and then all other mammals, because camels are, camels are mammals. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and equal votes, as in women's suffrage, you know, the Voting Rights Act in the 60s and, and mm. all that. So to cobble together, you know, in some kind of thematic way, <laughs> trucks, camels, all other mammals and voting rights <laughs> is is a really kind of abstract mind at work <laughs> absolutely and the lyric for that song should be read and studied in the same way as james joyce's ulysses <laughs> with with some sort of um a book full of notes explaining who and what all these references you know are about who is we willie harris yeah, for instance. Now, those those kinds of things and in fact we willie harris was a rocker from the 1950s right. who had a grand total of zero hits but he recorded an album in 2000 and he called it 20 reasons to be cheerful <laughs> <laughs> and he dedicated it to ian jury who yeah, I think he must have passed away in 2000, didn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah, I think it was 2000 that that album came out. So, yeah, I think we, we Willie Harris, who was about five foot two, so he was we, mm. uh, did get a bit of a uh, career boost. Oh, okay. Courtesy of being mentioned in the song. Well, that's pretty so, And cool. it's a fantastic song. It's a hilarious song. I just love it. And another single that had a great B-side, which is a song called Commander's Mark. 
Um, Australian tennis player Ivan Gulagong got name checked. But I guess he needed to find a rhyme for patience strong, so he wouldn't he wouldn't have had many options there. He could have said Shelley Long, but I think um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Cheers was four years away. So. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been early. Yeah, it would have been. Uh, wasn't she in a film with um, the Fonz? Yeah. Yes. It was around this time, but I think it was after 1980. It would have shown incredible foresight if he mentioned Shelley Long <laughs> in <laughs> the um, uh, Regarding Yvonne Goolagong, um, he was quite agitated, uh, in all seriousness, about Australia's treatment of its Indigenous people. He got quite kind of shirty about that when he was on tour in Australia. He'd get into arguments with people about it. Oh, okay. So it mightn't have been entirely an accident that, that, that he mentioned Yvonne Goolagong. I thought he was just a tennis fan. <laughs> <laughs> And a fan of, of uh, excellent rhymes. Yes, that's right. So Mark, you're a fan of uh, both of Yvonne Goolagong, presumably, and of Reasons to be Cheerful? Yes, absolutely. I, 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 well, it was the B-side she was mentioned on, so yeah, I like yeah. both sides of that record, yeah. But then, this is, we're still in 1980, or we are in 1980 now, Chaz Jankel leaves the Blockheads, which I think was kind of devastating. He wanted to work on yeah. a solo career. Yeah, well, I think he felt a bit disrespected by Ian and just exhausted just mm. by the tempestuous relationship that Ian had with the world. Mm. Uh, Chaz was replaced with Wilco Johnson, yeah. Dr. Feelgood, apparently without Ian bothering to consult the rest of the band. <laughs> so that was impressive. Yeah, Chaz, Chaz was quite busy in his solo status. Well, he had, uh, he had a few hits himself, and uh, I think he wrote some songs for some other people as well. But I think Chaz's departure left a real gap in the music of Ian Drew in the Blockheads. Even though the next single, I Want to Be Straight, did really well for him. I want to be straight. I want to be straight. I'm sick and tired of taking drugs and staying up late. Yeah, and what a fine song it is too, and, and a really, really hilarious one as well. Hmm. Come out of the cold and do what I'm told and don't deviate. Yes. <laughs> which is pretty good. And I won't attempt to sing any of the lines. <laughs> you're, doing, you're doing so well. Although I threatened to prior to us uh, pressing the record button on this podcast, <laughs> but I won't, I won't do that. But uh, I was really impressed by um, what Chaz got up to. During this year, yeah, he released a solo self-titled album with a single, I No Corrida, mm. and it was co-written with Kenny Young, who himself had co-wrote Under the Boardwalk in the 60s. So I don't know how Chaz got involved with the guy from Under the Boardwalk, but Quincy Jones did a cover version of the song, which reached number 14 in the yeah, UK. Yeah, it became and, a big uh, hit for him. Yeah, number 28 in the US. And I was amazed to discover that an instrumental version of that song won a Grammy. So, yeah, Chaz left the Blockheads and won a Grammy, which is pretty impressive. Yeah, no, he certainly did so really well for him. So he had another song called Questionnaire. And I remember hearing that on the, uh, on the old Saturday morning music shows. Yeah, I remember thinking, like, when I saw Chaz Jankel as the artist, I thought, oh, that's the guy from the Blockheads. So he, he did go on to do some great things himself. But yeah, I noticed particularly on the next album, I thought the album suffered due to Chaz Jankel not being involved. Who wrote the songs on this album if he didn't? Well, the next album was Laughter, and uh, yeah. it, it was just Ian with various members of the band. So there were other blockheads who were helping him out. There'd been some grumbling within the band about the financial side of things. So Ian set about writing songs individually with each of them right. to kind of bolster their, their songwriting earnings. Which I think is fair enough. Yeah, but I think Ian was going through a pretty tough time. He was, you know, over a period of years, he became addicted to sleeping pills mm. and was becoming more dependent on alcohol as well. So, yeah, he wasn't in a great state of mind and apparently he decided to call the album Laughter to try and cheer himself up, <laughs> <laughs> which is... Which is, you know, a pretty good reason to do so. But yeah, the song Uncooler Hole uh, on the Laughter album is about being an alcoholic or certainly having an alcohol problem. It's ironic that Uncooler Hole is such a great drinking song. That, you know, it's a great sing-along song. And the song Delusions of Grandeur 
is about a spoiled pop star. Just won a trophy from my radio station. I'm leaving my back and my balls to the nation. I think Ian was kind of, it was a, a moment of self-reflection. Yeah, well, they're kind of semi-autobiographical songs, a lot of these, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, that's right. Except Over the Points, which seems to be a song from the point of view of a train. <laughs> <laughs> the underrepresented voice in post-punk, Thomas the Tank Engine. Thomas the Tank Engine. I carry you backwards and forth, south and north, on down the line and up. But yeah, I, I like some of the songs of laughter, but I, I think the, the melodic component that Chaz brought to the music it, it wasn't there on this album, even though Ian's lyrics were still as good as ever. In Delusions of Grandeur, he says, stiff me, hype me up the charts, then I can go public with my private parts. <laughs> That's a great rhyming couplet right there. <laughs> yeah, it is. So, Mark, you're, you're a fan or not? Um, yeah, look, I'd agree with Graham. Yeah, it, it seemed to lack something. That album, I'm, I'm not really, I can't really put my finger on it, but, I, yeah, I would agree. I also wanted to talk a bit about the fact that Ian's music has been used in commercials. And I think the reason why his music has been used so much in commercials is because his songs, like, they tell a story and um, they're not just the I love you, you love me style of song. Mm. So they kind of lend themselves to, to advertising. And, of course, the, um, the one we should all recognise is that Billa Ricky Dicky was repurposed to be a spray and wipe commercial in this country. I didn't, re- didn't realise that. For about 25 years, <laughs> that, spray and, <laughs> that spray and wipe jingle was played on the television. Makes cleaning oh so easy. It's tough on all things greasy. The wedding was a hit, the house looked great, I will admit. So thank you. Some advertising executive somewhere, the fact that he heard that song and thought, you know what, Spray and Wipe could use that song. (laughs) And I know also in Australia, I Want to Be Straight was used in a commercial recently, but I can't remember what what they were advertising. In the UK, reasons to be cheerful became reasons to eat Alpen. Now, Alpen is like a a muesli of some description. (laughs) And they actually had Ian Drury come in to sing the new lyrics. Um, which I thought was pretty cool. Reasons to eat Alp. One, two, three. Lots of oats and wheat, heavenly to eat, makes every day a treat. Now added sugar taste, try any place. And in New Zealand, yeah. they were advertising beef and lamb and they played There Ain't Half Been Some Clever Bastards under that commercial. No, Will Coward was a charmer. As a writer, he was drama. And I think they were just saying that the guys were barbecuing meat so they're clever bastards. They kind of missed the point of the song. But um, it's quite interesting as, as to how, how many times I've heard his music yeah, yeah. Uh, on the television. Well, you would have thought it was sufficiently distinctive, you know, the style of the lyrics to make it pretty hard to, to kind of repurpose, but obviously not. Yeah, there's, there's been quite a few examples of it. Something probably worth mentioning is that the Laughter album was a commercial failure. Mm. And quite strikingly, because the previous albums had done well and Laughter stalled at number 48 Mm. on the charts and the single which preceded the album, Superman's Big Sister, only got to number 51. Right. Yeah, Ian might have been beginning to get a little bit alarmed. Mm, Absolutely. They went to the uh, Bahamas, Compass Point Studios, September 1981, Lord Upminster. So name-checking the town that Ian had grown up in. And they arrived at Compass Point Studios just as the Tom Tom Club were leaving, uh, having recorded their album. Oh, really? So Compass Point Studios, 12 months earlier, Back in Black, had been recorded by ACDC, Emotional Rescue, Rolling Stones album the year before that. So it's an interesting pedigree mm. in terms of uh, Ian Jury arriving to, to, to do his stuff there. But it was, it was interesting that they chose to work with uh, Robbie Shakespeare and Sly Dunbar. Yeah. They famously worked with Grace Jones. and uh, That was probably Chaz's idea since he was back on board, wasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, he was, yeah, yeah, Chaz was back now. One funny thing I heard was that Ian and Chaz wrote a lot of the songs on the plane flight to Jamaica. So um, I think they went very well prepared. It does sound like an album on which most of the songs were written on a plane flying to the studio. (laughs) (laughs) Mm. Yes. There was a song called Trust is a Must. And um, it sounds like a Sly and Robbie jam with a few lyrics thrown over. (laughs) 
I remember hearing that song at the time and thinking it was one of the stupidest songs I'd ever heard. <laughs> but listening to it this time around, it is actually like a like a really funky instrumental track mm. uh, with some kind of nonsense words on top. But the actual music, I really like. I think the lyrics are space is the place, space is the place, space is the place, put your face in space. <laughs> I mean, that is the most complicated lyric in the song. Yes. So there's another song called Girls Watching, which basically sounds like a Grace Jones beat. And I think Grace Jones probably could have performed it herself. He's sort of semi speaking it, which is what Grace used to do a lot of the time. But one song I, on the album that I really love is Red Letter. I'd never heard the song okay. before, and I just think it's uh, that's a wonderful song. And I hope this letter will make I quite like the album, but it is slightly anonymous and, mm. and Ian's lyrics are kind of not so much at the fore. Ian's publicist said, I told Ian it would make a good four-track EP. <laughs> he responded by throwing an ashtray at me. <laughs> so, um, as you say, Mark, Ian said that, you know, he wouldn't bother listening to, to any of it again. Um, Chaz, I think, liked the Spasticus single, which we'll talk about in a second. Mm. But he also liked the song Lonely Town. But that was it. So if the two main you know, protagonists think that little of it, there's a fair chance it's not that great. Yeah. It is a bit neither here nor there. It's a bit throwaway, isn't it? It just sounds like mm. a, a bunch of jams with a yeah, a bit of an attempt songwriting over the top, but not, not much of an attempt. Mm. <laughs> yeah. And it flopped as well, which was no great surprise. Number 53 in the UK, September 1981. Yeah, and I guess it's chart success or otherwise wasn't helped by the single Spasticus Autisticus being band and uh yeah do you remember hearing that song and do you remember the controversy about it i remember seeing it on countdown actually i think he was in town at the time wasn't he wasn't he in australia yeah i think he might have been and uh, the band played it Apparently he wrote it as a protest song against the International Year of the Disabled, which Ian Drury considered a bit patronising. Yeah, I mean, it was, a, it was a great idea, the International Year of the Disabled, but I think Ian's attitude, as you say, was, OK, so 1981, disabled people, we were worried about them. 1982, they can fend for themselves. <laughs> and the song, I think he was asked to write a song for, oh, really? for the Year of the Disabled. I don't know whether he was formally asked to do it, but mm. he did it, and it's absolutely, yeah, it's a really intense song. Mm. In terms of put your money in my tin and be grateful you're not in the state I'm in, you know, yeah. that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, it was really, really angry. And I remember with the controversy about it and being disrespectful to disabled people or being offensive, you know, because there's a few kind of minor swear words in there. Mm. My attitude, even as a 17-year-old, about the controversy was, well, he's a disabled person. Why shouldn't he write about <laughs> disability however the hell he wants to? Yeah. And like most of the opinions I had when I was 17, I still hold firm to those opinions <laughs> today. Yes. I haven't evolved one iota. <laughs> and I'm really surprised in retrospect about the, the controversy. And the song was played in the opening ceremony for the 2012 yes. Paralympics. I actually got quite moved when I heard this song performed at the Paralympics. I only just watched it recently. Beyond that, I felt kind of sad because I think Ian would have loved to have heard that. It almost legitimised the song to have it performed at the Paralympics opening. And um, yeah, it, I think it was a nice moment. Um, did you not see him play in Australia as well, Brian? Uh, yes. Around this time? Around this time. It was the 27th of November 1981. I saw them at Cloudland in Brisbane, supported by the Sunny Boys, if you remember ah, those guys. Yes. Um, and yeah, they were fantastic. They were so good. What I remember most is Wilco Johnson frenetically running up and down the, the stage and playing that guitar in that inimitable style. He was really good. Interesting thing was I went along to that concert with a, a friend of mine from school who um, who wasn't going to many concerts at the time, but he really liked the injury. And when we were there, I noticed a uh, 
small group of girls that I knew from high school who were there who also weren't, you know, going to see this kind of music. So he seemed to appeal to um, a lot of people who wouldn't have gone, wouldn't have gone to see Ice House and the Simple Minds, which was the night after this concert. Um, (laughs) I guess there were a lot of people out there who really didn't know about new wave music or really care about it, but they, they seemed to relate to him and his lyrics. And uh, see, so I thought that was quite interesting that they were there. Were you there, Mark? No, no, I don't know why I wasn't, but I was. I can't, I can't remember why I didn't go, but it may have been something to do with being poor and broke. <laughs> <laughs> well, you were in year 11 at the time as well, so you, yeah, you probably weren't cashed up. Well, I wasn't living at home, so I had no reason not to go. <laughs> I don't know why. Well, I guess we maybe forget just how huge hit me with your rhythm stick was in Australia. Mm. It was number one and not just, a, you know, like it was, it was a massive hit, one of the biggest selling songs of the year, I think. So, you know, he was certainly a huge pop star, even though he didn't have massively big follow-up singles in Australia. Mm. So, yeah, I can see why girls from, from school might have been there. You'll see. Well, before we finish up, I just want to read out this quote. It is well nigh impossible to imagine an Ian Drury figure, eccentrically brilliant, utterly English, essentially untamable and physically disabled, emerging in today's post-pop idol, pop mainstream, after years of paying his dues on the pub circuit wilderness. When it's all over, I'll rest on my laurels. When I read that, I thought, yeah, that's right. But I'd probably go one further and say, I don't think he would have become successful before this time either. Like during the no, no, during the right. 60s or the, the prog rock movement or glam he wouldn't have become successful then either it, it really was you know it, it just was his time and i think you know new wave provided him with this kind of platform where people were looking for other sort of eccentric performers but yes he he certainly yeah he certainly wouldn't become successful today no his music didn't change hugely from kilburn and the high roads 71 72 through to the blockheads i mean you know it did become funkier and so on but he didn't change the times changed Mm, i think if you've seen photos of kilburn and the high roads they describe themselves as oxfam chic in terms of the, you know, the overcoats they used to get around in. And, you know, they were really scruffy. And this was in the glam rock era. <laughs> so, you know, they could not have been more out of time. Yeah. Um, it did look as if it was never going to happen for him. And I did see a review from 1976, which described Ian Jury as a rock and roll loser, you know, mm. but, you know who was never going to have success. Yeah. And, yeah, I think that's right. It really needed to be 1976, 77, 78. Mm. for him to have the success that he had. Yeah, that's right. Um, and when I think of Ian Jury, I can't help thinking of John Cooper Clark as well, the uh, poet from the North, the mm. Mac- Mancunian, I think. Between them, you know, they were the kind of punk poets that had England covered geographically. And, you know, they were certainly the kind of cleverest wordsmiths and Ian happened to be in a band that wrote fantastically catchy songs as well. The merging of just about the most proficient band in England at the time, post-punk or non-post-punk, with Ian's lyrics and his attitude created something that was completely unique. And yeah, post-punk just wouldn't have been the same without him. Mm-hmm.